You've read or heard or preached the scripture this week. Now what? Join me, Pastor Carissa, and my colleague, Pastor Alan, as we explore the spaces between the Sundays in our podcast, Soft Idolatry. Welcome to Soft Idolatry, Season 6, Episode 7. Carissa, what's new? Uh, well, it's a pretty standard September day here in Pittsburgh, getting used to the routine of my kids being back in school, which has been a little bit of an interesting adjustment after a year and a half of homeschooling them while working primarily from home. But I think we're getting into that that routine. How about you? Uh, it's, it's nice but muggy here in Jersey, and uh, um, I got a brand new porch door today, so that was nice. That's always exciting. Mm-hmm. With a with a brand new screen that doesn't have any holes in it yet. Excellent. You say yet as if you're going to go like poking holes in your screen door for <laughs> some reason or another. Not not intentionally, but one never knows. Uh, any anything else that you, you want to share with the listeners today, or uh, what what do you mean? Like you know anybody like hanging out here with us today that you might want to introduce. Oh, right, right. We have a guest on the podcast today. As I might have mentioned, I'm working on a doctor of ministry, and we have one of my classmates today, Katie Calloway. Katie, how is it going? It's going pretty well here uh, in sunny Savannah, Georgia. This this is new for us. We, we haven't had anybody from uh, farther outside the area than, well, me because <laughs> in my my head and carissa's head the area is still pittsburgh ah uh, yes well this is not pittsburgh mm. uh we have uh two seasons and those are hotter than hades and um the seventh uh layer of hell um <laughs> and so right now we're in the the first of those seasons um, and then May of next year, we'll probably uh, will will enter the second season once again. We just we just got out of the seventh layer, um, so thank goodness we're experiencing reasonable eighty degree temperatures again. As much as I hate winter, that sounds horrible to me. <laughs> it's great. We get used to it. We just sit on the beach all day. Here's what I found. Siri, Excellent. Siri had something to say about that. <laughs> Siri's got feelings about the heat as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. So like Alan mentioned, you're, you're in the demon program with him. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you're, where you're at, where you're ministering and um, just give us a little bit of context. Sure. A little bit of social location. <laughs> well, I'm standing at my desk at the corner of <laughs> Whitaker and uh, Hull Street. No, I, uh, I am the co-pastor of uh, First Baptist Church of Savannah, Georgia. Um, and what's interesting about it is I co-pastor with my spouse, John, um, who is also a demon student at PTS. Um, he's finishing his degree right now. Um, but we met in seminary and um, we went to Wake Forest University School of Divinity. And uh, it was an incredible experience, opened my eyes to um, all kinds of hospitable, radical theology um, and, and that I had no idea about. And uh, I began this journey into the 
uh, Baptist world. I was not Baptist before I went to Wake. Um, and I want to be clear here. I am in Savannah, Georgia, so I am Southern, and I am Baptist. I'm pastor at First Baptist Church of Savannah, Georgia, but I am not Southern Baptist. Um, I would not be here if I were Southern Baptist, as they do not like people like me. I'm missing a few parts. Um, and so, uh, alas, here I am. My congregation is, um, we have this, the oldest standing house of worship here in Savannah. Um, and they are um, they have kind of made a little niche for themselves as the progressive Baptists in town. Literally, there is one congregation that is progressive and Baptist, um, which f- feels kind of par for the course for those who don't know the Baptist tradition. Um, but we uh, really pride ourselves on religious freedom in its truest sense, uh, in the, the Roger Williams sense, uh, you know, uh, founding the, the colony of Rhode Island uh, to be a safe haven for people who are distressed of conscience. Um, and uh, he was way ahead of his time. And, and so we're Roger Williams types, type Baptist. Um, and uh, anyway, it's, it's a neat place to, to pastor. Savannah is a, a, a tourist town. Uh, so we're 20 minutes from the beach. Um, my house is actually 10 minutes from the beach. And um, uh, we, it's just a really unique place. History, history is everything. And Alan has probably learned this from my presentations in class, um, that our congregation and our area really prides itself on our really rich history. Um, and so it's kind of fun being a pastor here because we get to be pastors and we get to be theologians and we have to be historians um, and a little bit of sociologists. And um, so uh, when people say that theologians uh, need to stay in their lane, I tell them to bug off because theology is the queen of the sciences. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so if you will permit a more prosaic question, how long have you been serving there? Um, I've been here. We came in um, May of 2019. So we uh, hit our nine month mark when mm. we started shutting down for COVID. Um, so uh, we will have been here three years before we have a real Easter in our sanctuary. Um, and more importantly, maybe for people in Savannah, a real St. Patrick's Day um, here in Savannah. So uh, that's that's kind of mind blowing uh, that we haven't experienced that yet here. I, I never would have associated St. Patrick's Day and Savannah, Georgia, as being uh, intimately tied with one another. That, oh, man. I find that fascinating. Yes, uh, we have the second largest St. Patrick's Day celebration, second only to Chicago, um, and it's 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 supposedly uh, just wild. Um, and the parade goes right by our church. And um, anyway, so yeah, it's it's. But I haven't experienced it. I've been here almost three years, and I've never experienced it. So I don't know. Everybody could be lying to me. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So was there any other housekeeping that we wanted to to do with Katie before we dive into the the heavy stuff? 
I'm game for hopping right in today. Okay. Uh, as we as we mentioned to everyone last week, we're going to spend some time talking about what would happen if we blew up the church. Not like literally blew up the church. And I want to be explicit about that today because over the uh, September 11th anniversary weekend, there were, at least in my area, some churches that received uh, threats over the weekend um, of, of violence. Uh, we're not proposing actual blowing up of churches or anything along those lines, but rather, what if the church as we know it just didn't exist today? What if we transported ourselves to a time uh, when it hadn't been steeped yet in all of the tradition and history that we have, because we're kind of in a prime time to reinvestigate what church is and what it means and what it does. That's so apocalyptic, Carissa. I know. It's like a revelation, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. We could do another series on that. We... (laughs) Or we could just replay the last one we did on Revelation. We could do that, too. So, uh, Katie, we invited you on for a number of reasons, including the fact that we wanted someone who uh, has maybe some different perspectives and maybe uh, some generational differences. So get us started. If, If you could build the church from the ground up, what would that look like? It's such an interesting question, y'all, because I have dreamt of this, right? (laughs) I mean, I feel like every person coming out of seminary has dreamed of like, man, if I could build a church that doesn't have the institutional baggage, right? Mm -hmm. And um, doesn't have, you know, all of the, all of the crap. I mean, y'all, I'm coming from a tradition that just carries this incredible load of baggage on our back by the way we identify. Um, so uh, yes, <laughs> this is this is a relevant question. I want to first push back on it a little bit. Um, and I hope this is appropriate. Absolutely. Uh, because uh, serving a church that identifies so heavily in its history, um, that that celebrates its history. Um, This is the first church that I've served that has a founder's day service. Um, We've served churches with like homecoming and, and like revivals and stuff, which, but uh, (laughs) this is the first church I've served that has a founder's day service. Um, And so you really serving here, I've really begun to appreciate the history and the tradition and the way in which it gives me as a young pastor, especially um, an identity to dig into a rootedness. And so uh, as, as I've kind of pressed into this question, one of the things that I've grappled with, and I think there have been a few people who have talked about this before. um, Andy, uh, Andrew Root is his name that he writes by, but Andy Root talks about a fascination with youth and, and vibrancy. Um, but I wonder if this question also reveals a little bit of an idolatry of the new. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think as consumeristic, you know, whether or not we have fought in our ministries and public lives against capitalism, we are baptized in a capitalistic setting um, in a system that is 
uh, all about profit. And in doing so, we are programmed to want the next new thing. Um, and so the thing that is countercultural for me as a 32-year-old senior pastor is to say, no, like I stand right here on these historic steps in this historic pulpit and proclaim a word that is valuable. And we are going to reclaim all of this crappy baggage that we're carrying as Baptists. And so I do have my, my initial reaction to that question is like, yes. And then the more I pressed into it, it was like, no, but I really have found so much identity in the tradition and the liturgy and the history that my congregation has given to me as a pastor. Wow. I, I, I like that response. And that is, um, that, that is really um, not the first thing that me as an almost 50 year old white man uh, expects to hear from somebody of a different generation. But uh Talk to me about um, talk to me about say the liturgy. What is it about that that uh, that you're geeked over? Because that seems to be something that uh, I, I don't know about you, Carissa, but when I hear people talking about church being boring or not fun, you know, I, I hear people complaining about liturgies that they don't understand. So. Katie, what is it about that liturgy that energizes you? Yeah, and I'll say real quick, too, as you're thinking about the answer to that, I actually get the opposite, Alan. Um, in my the two congregations I was just serving, when we would do something super traditional like chant a psalm, they loved it. Um, and in the setting where I'm at now in a correctional facility and chaplaincy there, the liturgy is so calming and so healing to people mm -hmm. because it's words they know it's predictable, it's soothing. So, yeah. um, I'm just going to throw my two cents in there about that. And that I, I would, I would agree that there's a lot of pieces of our liturgy that I wouldn't want to blow up with, <laughs> with some of the other structures and organizations of the church. Yeah, that's a good word. And, and I think that's what, and, and maybe, maybe it's a, maybe it's an ebb and a flow, you know, mm -hmm. um, maybe it's that in this season where everything else is changing, what we need right here is rootedness to history. And, and that's something that I found in my congregation, um, that, uh, starting over from scratch, um, is not an option for us because, my people have started over from scratch in all these other realms of life because of mm. the pandemic. Um, so we started doing an evening prayer service um, during COVID um, since we couldn't take communion in our services um, because of the danger that it posed passing plates. Um, and so we started doing it and experimenting with different styles of evening prayer. We did the Holden uh, evening prayer from the Lutheran tradition. Um, we've done Tze prayer at the beach. We've done um, different traditions of prayer, of evening prayer services. And those services have been the most meaningful to people because they offer a, a rootedness, B, a bodily memory, um, because the, the chanting gets into their being. And, and there's something about that when it's, when it is, uh, when we are 
bypassing for, for my congregation, uh, the liturgy helps us bypass the critical mindset we have, the, the hermeneutic of suspicion that we have, that we attach to the scripture, to the hymn lyrics that are super bloody and have sacrificial atonement that we don't believe in. Like the, the liturgy as a whole helps us transcend that and take it in, take, take the, the ritual into our bodies. Um, and for me, serving this congregation of highly educated people who have to be highly critical in every other realm of their lives, to sit here and to, to watch them be able to um, bypass their critical, not saying that they leave their minds at the door, but to, to watch them be able to be taken to a deeper level of themselves um, by embodying the liturgy is a beautiful experience. Um, and so that's where, that's where I find the power of the liturgy. Um, and not all liturgy has to be boring. Um, so <laughs> yes, um, we have turned our church covenant into a responsive liturgy that, uh, then we sing the Gloria Patri after, and it is beautiful. Um, and, and so our standard for liturgy is it's got to remind us of who we are and it's got to take us to a deeper level of ourself to be present in a new way in the worship service. And when those are the, when those are the standards, you can go in a number of different directions that are not dreadfully boring. Uh, I haven't been in those dreadfully boring services and um, they're the worst. I have two questions that I think are actually one question from two different angles. So I'm going to ask them together. And um, the, the first is, you know, we talk about liturgy. I remember this time when my husband and I were invited to a wedding and it happened to be a Russian Orthodox wedding. And neither of us had been to a Russian Orthodox church service before this wedding. And it was very confusing um you know and very the, long yeah it's very it was the longest wedding you know we're presbyterians we're used to a 20 minute wedding and then get to the party right and um and like good presbyterians every time the priest said let us pray we bowed our heads but everyone around us stood up there was no indication about what to do when with your body um half the service was in english half of it was in russian um and I say that all to say, you know, I know a lot of people for whom the, those liturgies are very um, soothing. They're very uh, reliable. They're part of our rhythms in the same way that we have liturgies that are part of our rhythms. Um, but how do you, you know, how do you then make you, the liturgies of the, the congregation accessible to those who may be on the outside? And the related question is, how do we root to our history in ways that doesn't um, leave those who aren't a part of that history aside? So one of the things mm. I've seen in congregations is if you haven't been here forever, you haven't been here forever. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. That's a loaded question. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot so there to unpack. <laughs> let me tackle the first one um, is kind of more about like how the so the way I hear it is the, the, the first question is more about how 
you make the liturgy accessible. And the second is how really we make our history accessible, right? Our identity and history accessible. So in terms of the liturgy, Lord, that is a growing uh, pain that I've experienced. Um, I came into this church and this church was steeped in all of these traditions. And I'll tell you this, one of the most interesting traditions of this church, and I've seen it elsewhere, so it wasn't new to me, but it just took some deprogramming. Um, the, the choir, when the choir stands, they stand the uh, congregation, not the organ, mm. not the pastor's. So I got here on my first Sunday and I stood up when I heard the organ and I was the only one standing up Um, and it was super awkward. Um, And that has happened more times than I am comfortable with as a pastor. Um, And so we have recently, uh, there was this one recent time when we had a funeral and it was packed and um, we only had a few people from the congregation there. And so the organ started playing and, uh, nobody was standing. The choir stood, nobody was standing. And like three or four people from our congregation who were, you know, all, all mixed into this big congregation for the funeral started standing and they were like looking around, like, why aren't y'all standing? Um, so we have changed that. And that is a growing point, uh, a growing pain for us because we have guests every week. We have 22 uh, on, on like a non COVID Sunday, we would have had 20 to 25 just passersby just from being on the central square in the middle of Savannah. And, um, so that's something that we've got to keep ourselves in check for, um, in terms of our history and keeping our history and identity therein, um, accessible. That's, that's a more difficult question. Because we don't have the best history. Um, We have a history that we're proud to tap into and that gives us an identity. Um, But, I mean, this is the conversation that's happening in every southern city right now. Like, how do you grapple with your past when your past is one that has uh, has explicitly oppressed a portion of the population? How, how can you consciously support finding your identity in that history? And the answer is, I don't know. Um, I'm grappling with this as a pastor of how do I serve as a pastor of this congregation when uh, 150 years ago, our deacons decided to, instead of giving our old building to the African-American congregation, um, that was attached to us. They sold it to them. And that wouldn't have been a problem, except for the fact that they were also enslaving them. And so uh, they charged $2,000 for the first African Baptist church in Savannah to purchase their building. And um, in the process, we built this grand building here that had enough space for the enslaved so they didn't have to sit with them. I mean, it was just like absurd. Well, it turns out that the, the, their people that they were enslaving came up with the money in three weeks and bought the building and they could have their own building. And that was great. But uh, the way that we tell that history is, Oh, we were the, we were the uh, benevolent 
slaveholders who gave them their building. And so coming to terms with that and, and naming that is the first thing. Establishing a relationship with their pastor has been a priority of mine in order for us together to tell this story um, the way it ought to be told. Um, but finding, finding entry points into our history has been something that the more we tell it, the, the, the easier it is. Um, and what also happens is the more we tell our history, the more people we make mad <laughs> because they get embarrassed by it. But it's, it's a history we have to tell um, well, because, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, it sounds like what you're, what you're blowing up is the myth of who you are. Yes. And, and the myth of innocence, right? Like the, the myth that we have always been the heroes. Um, and, and yeah, absolutely. That's a good one. Um, and so we can, we can embrace our history. Um, now there are some things that I would like to do with, if, you know, the whole thing just came tumbling down, right? Like meetings out the door. Um, <laughs> you're you're preaching to the choir, or rather, you're preaching yeah. to the Presbyterians right now. Like, <laughs> I'm so tired of meeting. Can it just we, be an email? We, <laughs> it it could, but we need to wrap this up quickly because I've got a meeting of the committee on committees. Oh, <laughs> yeah, our okay, we're in we're in the like committee nominating phase right now. Our nominating committee. Sorry, our deacons, which is like our elder board. I grew up Presbyterian, so I, I, I can speak Presbyterian. <laughs> um, our deacons have to be elected every year. There's, there's like a class of them that gets elected every year. To elect the deacons, we have to, the, the chair of the deacons, the vice chair of the deacons, the chair of finance, the chair of property, and the chair of personnel have to get together. So there's a committee, right? Because where two or more are gathered, there's a committee, right? <laughs> um, so there's, there's a committee. Then they elect a deacon nominating committee of five people who then gather to elect five deacons. So along the way, 15 people are involved when like, dang, that could have been such an easier process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <sighs> it, it sounds less like uh, you would want to just blow up the whole church and maybe just set some strategic dynamite in certain corners of mm. the rooms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do a little reforming there. I don't know if you've heard Phyllis. I think it's Phyllis Tickle's um, idea that every 500 years, the church needs to like go through a serious reckoning phase and we're 500 yeah. years out from the reformation. So yeah, um, maybe that'll be in our theses when we nail them to the door. No more committees. Yeah. Okay. Um, Sounds like the demon project. Yeah. <laughs> Did you say demon or... No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. That's what everybody says when I tell them I'm in a doctor of ministry program. They say, did you say demon? Yeah. Sometimes it feels like that. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. wait till it really gets going. Yeah. <laughs> it gets worse. <laughs> Katie, we're, we're in the easy program from what I hear. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You totally are. I keep giving Alan a hard time about that. 
<laughs> well, that's good. That's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think this is such an interesting question because um, it, it requires us to have a reckoning with the old that, um, because especially so many people in my generation, um, so many pastors in my generation are just ready to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And as progressive Baptists, I've seen the, uh, the ramifications of that. When, when uh, my denomination was made the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, um, a lot of the people who were in that kind of first group of reformers that broke off from the Southern Baptist Convention, they had this tendency to just throw the baby out with the bathwater. So um, people who grew up in this denomination did not grow up memorizing scripture because that was something the Southern Baptists did. And that's fine and good, but now uh, there's a whole generation of progressive Baptist people who don't know their Bible very well, right? Um, and, and the same is true for all kinds of stuff. You know, we can look at every reformation that has happened um, throughout the history of the church and see where the first reaction is to throw the baby out with the bathwater, burn it all down, right? Yeah. All the liturgy. And then slowly we bring back pieces. And so as I've been reflecting on this, I've been thinking about how that is kind of mirroring the process of coming back uh, to embodied existence after COVID, um, where, you know, during COVID, we became disembodied. We became the essence of what was in our little Zoom square, right? Um, but uh, as we've re-entered the world, we have tried sometimes more successfully than others to be intentional about what we add back. So we burned it all down at first and, and then we tried to be intentional about what we've added back. And that's the process that my congregation has taken in coming back in, in person. Um, so we haven't added back Sunday school yet because we've got some hard conversations that have to happen around it. Um, we haven't added back Wednesday nights because we've got hard conversations that have to happen around it. Um, and so maybe that tendency to burn it all down is good if there is an intentionality with which we approach adding stuff back. So, so what, what's, um, so, so we've, we've basically, um, gone into the church, smashed all the statues, broken all the stained glass windows, where, where are we in the phase of reintroducing these old teaching tools? We're done with the iconoclastic phase. Yeah. So where, what's your question now? Where are we in? Yeah. So, so, so like what, um, you know, if, if you uh, follow my metaphor, right, the, the reformers overreact to so many things in the Roman Catholic church. Um, mm -hmm. think things like stained glass or statuary, yeah. which are really teaching tools more than anything else. Right. Uh, but they, but they seem like the old Catholic superstition. Mm -hmm. So eventually us Protestants start reintroducing bits and pieces of that. Where mm -hmm. are you in the, uh, phase of reintroduction? Hmm. 
That's a good question. Um, so <clears throat> my congregation is really unique uh, because there are not many, uh, there are not many Baptists who are liturgical. Um, and so in terms of reintroducing, um, there's kind of like a meta level reintroducing and a micro level reintroducing, um, on, on the micro level, my congregation in particular, um, you know, it's, it's uh, introducing spiritual practices, ancient spiritual practices like the examine, um, like the practice of silence, which Lord knows my congregation ain't good at because their pastor ain't good at it. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, they, they were actually, they actually preceded me in their talkative nature. Um, but all of that to be said, so there's like, like that meta level of like introducing small practices. Right. But I think what we're seeing on a larger level is really interesting too. Um, on a larger level, the, the big study came out from the public religion research Institute, PRRI. Did y'all see this? Uh, July, maybe it was August. It was the beginning of August. Um, when they determined that the number of mainline Christians, and when I read mainline Christians, I kind of read liturgical Christians, has for the first time in like 40 years surpassed the evangelicals. We had a little bit of a bump to just send us over the evangelicals. We're <laughs> The way I explained it to my congregation is we're declining at a slower rate so the news is still not great, but it's a little better than it was. But on a on a meta level, I think what we're seeing is that addition of of some identity pieces that our history is giving us, the 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 historic traditions are giving us, that the historic liturgies are giving us, that the the um, paradox between old and new that these mainline congregations are giving us, the old tradition with kind of the new progressive theology, and seeing that even in their architecture, I think is very powerful. And I think we're seeing that on a meta level right now. Hmm. That, that's, uh, that's, that's an exciting observation. That's, um, you know, a lot of what I hear from colleagues in ministry or even from members is just like a, a sense of exhaustion. And yeah. uh, this is rather, what you're offering sounds rather different. Um, the, the, it sounds like you have a congregation that is really excited and engaged. Most days. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Most days. Yeah. Um, but yes, sometimes, sometimes it's excitement. That's like descriptive excitement. Like I'm describing all of the excitement that I'm seeing in my congregation. Sometimes it's prescriptive. Like I'm excited, but it's like, you know, they need to be more excited. <laughs> Trying to drag them along for the yeah. ride. You're going to be excited. <laughs> Come be excited with me. Yeah. <laughs> You know, one of the one of the thoughts that I have too about the obsession with youth, because uh, certainly I I hear uh, 
you know, where are the young families? I hear that ad nauseum. Oh my gosh. And, yes. <laughs> uh, I, I wonder how much of it is a, um, a longing that our, um, our boomers have for their own youth. Like mm. they've made an idol of, and, and it's always dangerous for us to call out idolatries of other people, but they have made uh, an idol of their own youthfulness. Uh, and, and now they are really pining for their own youthfulness. Yeah. And, and that's the power of nostalgia, right? Mm-hmm. Like and then, nostalgia is the idol of idols. Nostalgia is deadly. That's the idol of the Hebrew people in the wilderness when they start dreaming about the time when they were enslaved. Right. (laughs) And like, I just feel like I, I, I hear, I mean, in, in my world, we talk about the 1950s and I think a lot of people talk about the 1950s as like the church boom, the churches were bursting at their seams. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, they were segregated Mm-hmm. Women were not in leadership. Mm-hmm. I mean, need we go on and remind you that it wasn't as good as you remember it? <laughs> um, but there were seats in the aisles because nobody could, you know, uh, nobody could be turned away. And the fire marshal hated everybody because, you know, the church, the church had too many people in it. That was a good problem. Uh, but, you know that that nostalgia and i think maybe there there's the difference like how can we reclaim our identity in our history and how can we access that um without becoming nostalgic um because that's quite quite a challenge it's a hard line to walk it is indeed indeed so uh have you have you created an active anti-nostalgia program in your congregation? Is that, is that part of like blowing up your own mythology is crushing the nostalgia? (laughs) Every time I try to crush the nostalgia, I feel like I get crushed in the process. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, in a way, I wonder if that's part of the reason churches call young pastors i mean there's also this there's also this like oh maybe if we call a young pastor young people will be attracted to us so there's that (laughs) um but but there's also like i wonder if young pastors have to be a iconoclastic right um and Mm -hmm. and in that way sometimes our generation is the scapegoat for uh, nostalgic grumblings um, because everybody casts all of their nostalgic grumblings on us because we're iconoclastic. But uh, that generation too was iconoclastic in the 1950s um, of, of their parents' generation. And it's not necessarily something about youth that we're talking about. It's rather something about nostalgia that we're talking about that that it cannot sustain us in the way that these other truths can yeah there's um there's no leg to be knocked out from from under the stool or under the chair if we are talking about uh 
relationship with God or relationship through Christ. You know, uh, the, the Trinity is a very stable <laughs> uh, thing to rest upon where is it how, <laughs> surprisingly <laughs> is it it's a confusing thing to rest upon oh yes <laughs> well, well there's i'll, uh, I'll, I'll go oh, with sorry. relationship no that's okay I, i'll i'll go with the the fact that it is god in relationship with god's self and uh relationship is something to rely upon there you go and if anyone wants to hear more on how he feels about that, I'm sure we have at least three other episodes in which he goes into great depth. <laughs> now I'm interested. Well, Everyone's going to go through the back catalog. Yeah, what was interesting to me is like, yeah, when I see Trinity, I see no stability. And mm-hmm. and in the back of my mind, I was thinking of uh, the person, it was one of the Carls, um, Ronner, I believe, who said uh, if the New York Times or, you know, a newspaper ran an article that uh, a fourth person of the Trinity had been discovered, uh, it would have less impact on our average faith life than, um, you know, less of an impact. I, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but but I think the average person like does not find stability in trinitarian theology uh we might uh or in relationality um but uh anyway i think that's that's fascinating very cool very cool well i i don't know carissa i think i think we have um maybe uh mined all of the ore from this question that we're gonna get today i think so i think it sounds like we're not uh, burning down the whole church or just blowing up committees and nostalgia mm-hmm. and meetings yeah. and, and meetings, meetings. committees, yes. meetings, and nostalgia yes. <laughs> all need to go. But liturgy stays, rootedness yes. stays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I love it. But not boring liturgy. No, the good liturgy, <laughs> the good stuff. <laughs> Alan, you want to offer a prayer to uh, lead us out of here today? That'd be great. I would love to offer a prayer. Let us pray. Gracious God, in these times of uncertainty, we ask that you would send us your Holy Spirit, your mischievous Holy Spirit that blows up the places in our lives and our churches that are stuck, that blows up the things that do not glorify you, that blows up the things that separate us from one another, whether it's um, an idolatry for the past or nostalgia or an ideology that separates us from one another. We ask that you would send this spirit to us so that we may go out and make holy mischief, that we may upend old relationships reforge new relationships, uh, recraft and fix broken relationships, that we may do this all in your name so that we may build a better church, build a stronger church, a kinder church, and a church that more faithfully represents your plan for humanity. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.
Katie, thanks for being here with us today. Uh, you may get a call in the future from us at some point. I think we both really enjoyed having you here today and really appreciated your time. Yeah, hey, it's been I, fun. Thank you. You're welcome. I would I would love to come to your church sometime. Anytime. Yeah. It's good stuff down here and warm. Come in January. <laughs> that sounds perfect. <laughs> yeah, maybe after our January intensive. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Thanks for joining us on Soft Idolatry. For show notes and more information, check out our website at softidolatry.com. To send us questions or comments, you can email us at info at softidolatry.com. And if you'd like to help support this podcast, please become a patron at www.patreon.com slash softidolatry. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. <laughs>